Reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, yeah, right? When Luke's away, them cats will sit here and play regardless. We back, baby, with a bang. It's Morning Combat, Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. Hump day in the house and UFC 292 on the menu. I'm the Beige Bastard, Brian Campbell, your BBC with that BDE right here. The guy next to me, just a regular in these parts, arguably... With respect to Moro Ronaldo, my favorite Canadian, right? This side of Joni Mitchell, it's the Elvis Costello of MMA. TSN's Aaron Bronstetter and Ebron, you know I get fired up to do this jam with you, my friend. Well, if I can churn out the hits in MMA for as long as Elvis Costello has in music, uh, I mean, I'll have stuck around a little bit too long, but I mean, he is still putting out bangers even uh, to this to this date and uh, one of well, the all-time great rock pioneers. So I appreciate well, like, that comparison. Like Elvis, your aim is true, Aaron, and you're back. And we got a big show, like I said, heavy, heavy, heavy on the UFC in Boston pay-per-view this weekend. Bantamweight Bonanza. We're going to have reactions to yesterday's Canelo versus Jermel Charlo pro kickoff press conference to get you fired up for September 30th. And how about the bring back, Aaron, of an old school MK segment that you and I birthed together called Vinyl Intercourse? Well, I can't wait, and I don't know how many vinyl enthusiasts are out there outside of myself, you, and Lucas Brennan of Bellator fame, but uh, hopefully enough to stick around and watch that segment. Are you talking about uh, Lucas Brennan is a, is a, is a vinyl guy? What do you, what yeah, you I about? mean, on the Bellator broadcast, Mauro Ronaldo unearthed a nice nugget that Lucas has like over a thousand vinyl records, so he is now okay. uh, in, in the shortlist of, of my favorite fighters for that one reason. Well... Somebody wake Lucas Brennan up. You and I will be interviewing him for Vinyl Intercourse moving forward shortly enough. But great show for you today. So many great partners behind the scenes. Showtime, the label that pays us. And, of course, you can get 30 days free right now by going to Showtime.com. Bell's Horror Boxing, Bill Cosby Docs. We got them all right there. Yeah, W. Kamal Bell. We love you, brother. Also, MorningCombat.store. AB, did they, ever, uh, did they ever outfit you in any of this fantastic merch right here? I feel like this has become a recurring joke whenever you ask this. Like, it's... <laughs> It's like uh, when, when Jimmy was it Jimmy Fallon was, or uh, Jimmy Kimmel was saying that uh, who was that it that he always te oh, that uh, who was it that he always teased was coming up on the show? It's like, it's like that kind of recurring joke. Isn't the Matt Damon gets bumped Matt Damon, in the show? Yeah. Isn't that the joke? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Damon. Indeed. No time for Matt Damon today. It's become like a, a bit at this point. But yeah, please. I know that the Canadian shipping is expensive, but like I I have a PO box in the U.S. that you can send it to if you'd like. I can I can lower the costs for the uh, the, so the, the folks that put together the merch. So right on like the border on the U.S. side, you you pay for a uh, a shipping home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how you save money on shipping uh, in Canada because otherwise we get you know it costs costs a bundle. Where is this located? Are we allowed to disclose this? I don't want you. It's to get in, it's in upstate New York. Okay. All right. All right. There you go. There you go. Uh, Luke Thomas on vacation as well. Be back next week, so we'll set to enjoy that. I'm trying to think if there's any other business. Uh, shout out to AG1, but no ad reads today. Just the same. You can follow us at the social channels below. Gaff Pierre and Long Island Luke on the ones and twos from Malka behind the scenes. Thank you very much. And, uh, oh, Abron, there's too much hatred in this game. How about some congratulations in our space for the schmo, David Schmulensen and Helen Yee, tying the knot. They're engaged, brother. Congratulations across the board. 
Well, the knot is not yet tied, but I, I do agree with your sentiments. Congratulations to, to Helen and the Schmo. They've been at it for a long time in terms of covering MMA and, of course, uh, as a, a couple as well. But they, they uh, help each other out and continue to put out uh, great content for many years. You know, Helen and I actually, the first time I covered the World MMA Awards, I mean, that's a bit of a segue for you, but uh, I was doing the red carpet and Helen Yee was there. And this was probably like seven years ago. And uh, this was uh, pre-Schmo. And it was uh, nice to, to meet Helen there, where she was like really an aspiring journalist uh, coming up, working really hard, doing stuff on her own. Her and I actually happened to have the same camera, so we were kind of like exchanging uh, tips that there day. Is. So it was, it's nice to see uh, two, uh, two people who have been in the game for a long time get, you know, make it official outside of the, the uh, parameters of MMA journalism. Where do you think they currently rank in the MMA power couples pound for pound rankings? Ahead of Cheyenne and Roman or like above like probably below mandy and nina right but they'll fit in there somewhere nicely i'm trying to think in terms of like media power rankings are they the only ones like do we have any other couples that cover uh, mma Mr. And Mrs. i mean Megan karen bryant Olivia. unfortunately got divorced and herself and wade yeah. are no longer together and that was like the 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 original kind of media mma power couple but i'm not sure who else uh there is that you know, i can luke, uh, luke there oh esther lynn and ekc leiden oh, that's, to us yeah, yeah Long Island EKC, i mean so I don't know if they're quite there yet. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one to, yeah. uh, to beat in the couple's power rankings. And despite Luke's, you know, inching in this area, me and Brett Okamoto, we don't consummate. We're just good friends that have been through the wars together. Okay, so Hetero shout life out mates. to Brett right there. There you go. Hetero lightmates, indeed. Uh, lifemates. There you go. We got a great show, as I mentioned. Uh, hey, Chewy, we're about to bang. But Aaron, your great work at TSN. You want to plug anything off the start here? We always love you. Won't be in Boston this weekend, but I'm sure the coverage will be top-notch from your side of things. Yeah, uh, tsn.ca slash UFC is all of our UFC coverage, and uh, www.aaron.report is where all of my work is found. And like I mentioned uh, before, the World MMA Awards, uh, please feel free to vote for yours truly for Journalist of the Year. And, of course, Morning Combat for uh, Content Provider of the Year. Is that what it's called, Content Content Provider of the Year? It is called uh, Best MMA Programming, as we are Best once MMA again programming. Uh, up hey, against, sure you, you, know, you give them a, a vote as well. We're up against the Aerials, the Anik Florians, and all of the UFC products. We're going for a, a three-peat, and you are going to try to upset the apple cart here of this grip that Ariel Hawani has had for, what, 13 straight years over this business? Yeah, it's like a, very much a Cal Ripken Jr. type streak uh, for Journalist of the Year. So, I mean, Cal Ripken Jr. stuck around for a very long time. I'm not sure if this is the year that Cal Ripken sits one out. But, you know, if, if you feel like voting for me, please feel free to do that. There you go. AB in the house. Thank you very much. But let's spin it off. Let's get it popping. Here we go. Segment topic one for your MK experience today. Yeah, you knew it. It's UFC 292. It's Bantamweight Bonanza this Saturday, Boston TD Garden. Unfortunately, Abron, we're not getting all the names that were promised across the board as a bunch of fights were pulled due to injury. Big names like Henry Cejudo, Cody Garbrandt, former champions alike, will not be there. But as it stands, Abron, as we enter into Saturday's festivities Sure, we're fired up for Aljo versus the Sugar Show. How do you sort of rank this card as it stands right now, up and down, in terms of its depth as we get fired up for this weekend? Yeah, it's probably like a 7 out of 10. Like you mentioned, we had, if you would have had Cejudo on that, and don't forget Song Yudong versus Rob Font was supposed to be on this card as well, would have been like a, like a WEC throwback with the amount of bantamweights. They just added Brad Katona and Cody Gibson as well uh, off of the finale of Tough yesterday. So... I love, like, the bantamweight division, I mean, I'm not telling any secrets here, is probably the most exciting to, division to watch across the sport. Bellator has a stacked uh, bantamweight division on top of the UFC having a stacked bantamweight division. So 
this is a card that it did take a lot of hits, but I still think that the the main card still has a, a lot to like about it. Even I mean the uh, the Pedro Munoz fight, I still think is a, a really solid sure. fight as well. Like we're seeing a lot of really good bantamweight talent, regardless of the ones that that unfortunately fell off. Yeah, and not only two title fights atop the marquee there, you've got some big-time risers that are looking to break through from me and Machado Gary, who we'll get to. to how about newcomer Damon Blackshear, fresh off of last week's Twister, gets placed upgraded here into the main card against Mario Bautista, so a lot of matchups there. But uh, before we break it down, is that a salmon jacket you're wearing? I just noticed that. That's very Mark Henry fake retirement in WWE-esque, correct? It's, it's actually, it, like, it, it, I can see how you could believe it, it would be salmon just looking at it, but... It's actually like a uh, white and red and black kind of checkered jacket. It's like it's not really salmon, but I, I can see how it kind of looks salmon on the, uh, the yeah. feed. But if you saw Very it up close, there. like, see, I don't know if you can see the stitching there. Let's see if the camera will focus in on that. It's like a, there you go. It's, it's trying to focus, but it's, it's like, you know, red and white and black. Indeed, indeed. Red and black with the it looks like I'm ready to go to a, to a, summer, a summer dinner party with this thing on. Kind of looks like that one shirt Luke wears every four shows. You know what I'm saying? They call it an aerial-looking shirt. I love that one. All right, let's keep it going here. The main event, Bantamweight Championship at stake. And really, a wake-up call. John Anik had a wake-up call to a lot of us about what's really going on here, the historical elements in what champion Aljamain Sterling is trying to do ahead of this bout with Sean O'Malley. Nine consecutive wins on the streak for Sterling, but the victory over Henry Cejudo last time out did give him the nod for most wins in Bantamweight history. And Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong here, but with a win, Sterling will break Dominic Cruz's tie for most title defenses in Bantamweight history. He says 99% this will be his last Bantamweight fight. We know about the ideas of his teammate, Marab Dvalishvili, uh, being due for a title shot right behind him. But let's start right here, A.B. J.A. John Anik, friend of the program, Basically coming out, what was it, on Twitter and saying, like, win or lose on Saturday, this man, Aljo, is the greatest Bantamweight this company's ever seen, and it's about damn time the rest of the sport shows up at his door with flowers. A.B., this has been a much maligned title reign when you consider the DQ win, the pictures afterwards, all that stuff that people blew up big, and not his fault, but a one-sided win over one-armed T.J. Dillashaw. In totality, though, is John Anik onto something here? You know, I think he is. I think that if you disregard Dominic Cruz's WEC run, then you could say that in UFC history, Aljamain Sterling has the best resume. I think that he has really solid wins on his resume. I mean, the Cejudo win, I think a lot of people should give him a little bit more credit for that one, to be honest. You're talking about a Cejudo that had several years to add more skills to the toolbox. You don't really know what you're going to see in a fight like that, a very risky fight for him to take. Uh, ends up winning that one. The, the the second Piotr Jan fight, I don't know how anybody can take that away from him. I know the first one with the DQ, it's, a, you know, obviously some question marks there. Not his fault at all that he took an illegal knee right to the face <laughs> that that disqualified his opponent. I don't know how people can take that one away from him. He was losing the point, the fight to that point, and I think Aljo would acknowledge that, but it's not his fault that that's how it ended um, and that that's what got the rain started to begin with. Um, you know, I think that he, he definitely deserves his flowers. You look at the record books at Bantamweight, and he holds a lot of really solid records uh, across the division. He's got the most fight time in Bantamweight history. He could eclipse four hours this weekend of, of cage time. He's got the most wins in Bantamweight history. The longest win streak is currently ongoing in Bantamweight history. Um, most strikes landed in Bantamweight history. Uh, a win, like you said, will, will uh, eclipse the most 
um, the the most title defenses in uh, bantamweight history, and also will tie T.J. Dillashaw for the most wins in title fights in uh, bantamweight history. So there's a lot uh, of records that he has on his side that really would bolster his case as being the greatest bantamweight in UFC history. But again, if you're bringing the WEC into it, I think you have to, to keep Dominic Cruz at the top of that list. I think that what he accomplished combined with the WEC resume probably gives him uh, you know, a little bit more weight to his resume. Yeah, I mean, we do have to wake up to this. And in a lot of these parts about the maligned elements of the streak has not been Aljo's fault. He's shown up ready. He, at 34 right now, has really figured out how to be the very best of himself. And he's a freaking problem. You don't beat the names he has unless that's true. I mean, he's got wins over former champions like Barrao, like... Jan twice, like Dillashaw, like Cejudo, let's not forget solid wins over Munoz, Jimmy Rivera, that level of guys. Uh, I mean, it's been a long time since Brian Caraway drove away on that stolen ATV with that split decision some seven years ago when we were questioning in the first of two back-to-back defeats, like, is Aljo going to be that dude we thought he was? No, he is. That's who he is. He is that guy now. So it's good to see him, people waking up to that element as we enter. Odds makers. Also, like him heading into this weekend, our friends at Caesars at the moment, minus 240, the favorite Aljamain Sterling against the plus 200 Sean O'Malley. So if this is about, you know, I mean, Anik's saying crown him right now, but in a lot of ways, if Aljo beats Sterling and does move up to Feather after this, uh, I'm sorry, beats uh, O'Malley, dude, you are, I mean, that's, a, that's just a sick resume. That would be a 10th straight win. It would be hard. I like to counter this argument of who's the best by saying, okay, maybe he doesn't have the same amount of defenses and big wins on that on the level of some, but TJ Dillashaw's still the best bantamweight I've ever seen in terms of at the peak of his powers. I know they did fight, unfortunately, like we mentioned, just so inconclusive, Aaron, to, to really try to like as a true baton and handoff in that regard. Aljo didn't get to fight Cruz, but he may be there anyway. But it's more about the fight in the matchup this weekend than who's the greatest of all time. But before we break that down, the 99% clause, do you think it's 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 closer to 100? What would keep Aljo in this division, in your opinion? I think a loss to O'Malley would keep him in the division. I think he would want to get that one back. And I think it would be a really big fight with a big payday. So that's what I think he's, why he says 99%. I think there's always that as a, a potential outcome. And if that happens, I, I think he would stick around for a rematch. I don't think that he would want to leave the division coming off of a loss to Sean O'Malley. Yeah, indeed. Interesting. Uh, if he wins and moves on, you'd have to think Marab's going to get the call for a vacant title, right? Yeah, I would think that you're going to see uh, Marab versus Sanhagen. If I had to guess, if there's a vacant title on the line, I, it's a unique matchup that hasn't happened yet. And uh, I think a very fun matchup if that does come to fruition. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I think Umar is still kind of a bit of a wild card having to pull out of that fight with Sanhagen and seeing what's next for him. But I don't think that at this point you can take it away from Sanhagen. I know that the win against Rob Font did leave a bad taste in some people's mouths because it wasn't the kind of exciting fight that we have come to recognize Sanhagen for providing. But he certainly put his winning conditions ahead of making an exciting fight, especially with an injury that he sustained in that fight and having to do what he had to do to gut out a win over a guy like Rob Font, who's just absolutely very game. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. But uh, so on the flip side, we did see O'Malley say if he wins, man, he wants... He wants Cheeto Vera in that rematch if Cheeto gets past his test. So a lot, a lot up in play. But it's about, as I mentioned, this fight. The odds close enough. I love the matchup. When we talk about the plus 200 Sugar Sean O'Malley, it's time to find out for the 28-year-old how great he is. But 
You know, it's weird, Aaron. O'Malley's always been very complimentary toward uh, Conor McGregor and saying that in a lot of ways he's the inspiration of O'Malley trying to be what he is, this breakthrough superstar who's on the verge Saturday of really getting that critical stamp to equal the large commercial and sort of individual unique persona that he has to become this popular. But would you agree that there's some similar elements for O'Malley entering this fight that McGregor had entering the Jose Aldo fight where it's like, yeah, he's gotten big wins to get to this point, but there's still that lingering overhead narrative. Is this guy complete enough to win a championship? Is this guy really the goods? Do you think people are still saying and believing that at a high level that we're not quite sure exactly how great O'Malley is? I think that element of it you can compare to Connor. In terms of the actual aura around O'Malley, I don't think that we've really seen anybody match the same kind of aura that McGregor had going into those fights. How he was just starching guys in the first round for the most part uh, at featherweight and and had that kind of era era of invincibility around him. I don't like we've seen as much as Sean O'Malley hates to admit that Cheeto Vera beat him. We saw Cheeto Vera beat him. We almost saw Andre Sukumtot beat him. If it wasn't for Andre Sukumtot taking him down. And if he would have just allowed Sean O'Malley to get up and, and kick the legs, like he might have had a loss to Andre Sukumtot on his record, right? We have to remember these kind of things. And I think that that's what makes this kind of interesting as well, is because we know that Sean O'Malley does have flaws and does have things that have been exploited in the past in his game. So this the kind of performance that Sean O'Malley could deliver here on Saturday, I think that's the thing that could really raise his profile a lot. Is you know If he's able to actually cleanly beat Aljamain Sterling, I still think he's slept on a little bit going into this fight and that he can prove a lot by having a really strong win over Aljamain Sterling and and showing people that, hey, you thought that I had these holes in my game. Well, they've been cleaned up. I'm a well-rounded fighter and I can beat the best in the world. UFC does such a great job of storytelling through their online elements from embedded to countdown. And I caught them all ahead of this. Is it criminal that they're not mentioning when telling the O'Malley story at all, both the two-year USADA detour and that verifight which to be honest did have leave us with as many questions as we had answers regarding a lot of things i know there was an injury side o'malley can lean on but there was a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth about o'malley coming out after that and to be fair even last july when he fought munoz it ends in a no contest but there were people saying man munoz had him figured out this all kind of conspires together i wish ufc told the full story but Beating Piotr Jan should have shut everybody up regarding that, right? Should have shut everybody up in terms of whether, how you know, is this guy really this good? Yeah, and I mean, I still think that not a lot of people are giving him the kind of credit he deserves for that win. I mean, that he was a massive underdog in that fight. And while a lot of people disagreed with the decision, still a super close fight, very competitive with a guy that I think a lot of people thought at the time that Piotr Jan was still the best bantamweight in the world. Again, at that time. I, I don't know if people would make that case now after the Marab fight, of course, but going into that fight, a lot of people thought that Piotr Jan might have won the first two Aljo fights, right? Like, again, from, from kind of a, a moral victory standpoint. So I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I still don't know how much credit he has gotten. But I, to your point, though, about how they've built this fight up, I do think that telling those parts of the story would help humanize Sean O'Malley a little bit more and, and allow people to kind of see that this is a guy who has overcome a lot of obstacles. And, you know, Aljamain talks a lot about how um, you know, he's get, this is kind of the, the Dana White privilege sort of thing, and he's getting spoon-fed sure. a, a title fight. If you look at the start of Sean O'Malley's career to when he's getting this first title shot to Al, the start of Aljamain's career, where he, he really had to earn that title shot, it's only like a difference of about 450 days or something along those lines. It's not like a, a massive difference. It's like it's just a year and a half 
kind of difference between when Sean O'Malley got his first title fight and Aljo got his first title fight. So Sean O'Malley still has had to go through a lot in order to get this title shot. It's not like he's, you know, the contender series still seems kind of like a new thing, but it's, we're in season seven right now. Uh, so I think that, and we haven't had a lot of fighters from the contender series even get to the, the title level. We, of course, have Jamal Hill, who won the championship this year, the first to do it from the contender series. We've had Alex Perez. Um, you know, Tyler Santos, I, I believe, was on the contender series as well. So we, we don't have like a lot of fighters that have made it to the championship level from contender series like O'Malley is doing. And that's why it seems like a more recent thing. But it has been a, a while that he's been in the UFC. Yeah. And let's not forget Brendan Lochnane as a champion who's come out of that contender series. Well, fair enough. There you go right there. Uh, quickly, Aaron, uh, about the setup. Do you think this is strategic to use Boston for UFC? O'Malley with an Irish last name. This is the same arena where Conor McGregor well, beat Max Holloway, but same one. He had that breakthrough moment against Dennis Seaver, jumping the cage, accosting Aldo in the crowd. I know you've got another Irish sensation in Ian Machado Gary who could have his own moment, but does it feel like this is strategic by the company here? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that they made it line up specifically, but I do think that they needed a title fight for this card. And that's why soon after Aljo got the win um, in Newark, they probably just wanted to make sure that they were able to get a good title fight on this card. And of course, they also have uh, Zhang Weili uh, against Lamos, which we'll talk about. But I, I think that it might be coincidental, but at the same time, like you said, Irish last name, he's not really from... He's from Montana, now living in Arizona. Sounds like he's a regional star of any sort. But I, I do think that he's going to have the fan support. Then again, Henry Zahudo had the fan support against Aljo, who was fighting, you know, just across the bridge sure. in New Jersey, where he's from Long Island. He was getting booed more than, than Henry Zahudo was. So I don't really think it matters where you're putting Aljo, short of putting the fight in New York proper or Long Island. It seems like he's going to be the heel, regardless of uh, the circumstances. All right, Aaron, enough of the promotional side of it. The fight itself. Aljo, a a solid but but small underdog in some ways, uh, expected. What's the biggest question that needs to be answered by both fighters in this fight Saturday night? Well, I think the big question for O'Malley is what's his grappling like? You know, how is he going to deal with a guy who's going to be consistently trying to take him down and, and try to submit him? I mean, I, I think that his grappling is underrated, Sean O'Malley. Like, if you go and watch him compete in straight grappling he's really really slippery very very creative he's a creative guy in general when it comes to all elements of the sport when it comes to striking it comes to what he does on the ground like i think that he is a very very tricky um out for aljamain sterling but i mean this also has the potential to be a, a bit of a squash if aljamain sterling is able to impose his will with the wrestling is able to get o'malley down i think that he is a level above o'malley there but the big question i think for aljamain is for as long as this fight is on the feet, is he going to be able to hang with O'Malley and O'Malley's creativity and O'Malley's ability to string together combos and, and hit you hard? That's the big question. So, I mean, it's a stylistic matchup. It's it's mostly, a, I would say, a striker versus grappler matchup, but just so much as in MMA, those are their strengths. Like, it's not like a straight grappler versus straight uh, striker, but those happen to be, like, the, the strongest skills of both of their games. I think that that's really what... The big question is, like, how are each of them going to negate the overwhelming strengths of the other one that would be their biggest and clearest path to victory? Yeah, Aljo with a one That's just MMA, right? Like, I'm not saying anything that, that's scholarly here. I think that that's a very obvious thing that I just said. Um, but I do think that those are the big questions, really, is, like, can O'Malley hang with him in the grappling? And can Aljamain hang with O'Malley in the striking? Because it seems like they both improved a lot in those areas. So it seems like the former 
is probably the question on most people's minds. Because if you look at this matchup and you are critical about O'Malley, and it would be, again, fair to be, not just the the hiccups and the interruptions on his path to the title, not just the aura of anytime somebody comes in with a big personality and a following, they can sometimes get rushed to the top, but he's not a complete fighter. Now, his takedown defense may be better than you're saying, or grappling may be better than we we think, but the former is the biggest question to answer because we saw what Aljo can do to Corey Sanhagen like that, just a, you know less than 90 seconds into it. But I am more intrigued, though, by that other question, by the latter half of it, of what if O'Malley's takedown defense has leveled up in a big way? What if the terms of this fight are fought more on a, a level of O'Malley's side than Aljo? Are we sleeping on the evolution of Aljo's striking game? Are we talking about that enough? When you look at it, Aljo's only going to have a one-inch reach advantage as O'Malley comes in four inches taller in this matchup. Aaron, if a crystal ball told you that the ground game would not be the factor people think it would, how much would that affect the odds in your mind heading into this one? Like if it was a straight striking match? Like if, if we knew that there was not going to be any sort of grappling involved? If 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 you knew O'Malley could 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 make the not cancel out the grappling but diminish it, is Aljo in trouble? Is the real question? I don't know if I'd say he's in trouble. I think that Aljamain can hang with him on the feet. I just think that O'Malley has a, a pretty marked advantage there. Um, they're they're actually kind of similar in terms of volume. Like I mean, O'Malley's got really in terms of volume with bantamweight. Like he's got a pretty enormous lead in terms of the strike differential. But Aljamain's up there, too. Like, Aljamain has a pretty solid strike differential uh, against his opponents as well. Both good volume guys. We saw what happened when Aljamain tried to gas pedal Piotr Jan and, and put out way too much output. He got very tired quickly. Uh, I, I feel like we don't really know what a five-round Sean O'Malley is going to look like either, right? Sure. So that's kind of the, the intrigue for me here, too, is, like, does the volume need to kind of dip a little bit for Sean O'Malley to, to go five rounds? Or is his cardio going to be able to allow him to hang five rounds no problem. I think that that's a question that we still are yet to unlock the answer to. Yeah, to, to back up the points John was making, John Anik, about how underrated Aljo still is, and it's, it's definitely fair. I mean, I think, I, I think I've picked against him, Aaron, seriously, in every single fight up to this point. Sometimes you get in I got like that with Max Holloway for a while and on his run until he fully made me. The, the, the second knockout of Aldo, I mean, of, of, um, of, yeah, Jose Aldo was like, you know, if you if if you were still holding out, you're just a hater at that point. I woke up to it, but I have been behind the ball. Like what what do you what what would you say as an answer to what is the biggest thing people have missed about all Joe on this journey? Well, I think people have just underrated him as a whole. Like I mean, that second Piotr Jan fight, I think, was a big eye opener because he was a solid underdog in that fight, and I think rightfully so because the first fight he was losing until he wasn't. So I think that a lot of people have just tried really hard to diminish the skills of Aljamain Sterling and overlook them. But I, I feel like every time that's done, Aljamain rises to the occasion. And I think that, you know, the people that are going to be picking against him this time around, I, I understand why. But at the same time, I think we do need to give this guy his credit for how long he's hung around for. His Having a nine-fight win streak in the perhaps the toughest division in the sport is, is certainly no joke. So, you know, we, we have to give the guy the kind of credit that he deserves. And... Um, I believe he should be favored to the amount that he is favored right now against O'Malley. But at the same time, if you're looking for value, you know, O'Malley's another guy that's also risen to the occasion that's won as an underdog. You saw him against Piotr Jan do exactly the same thing and, and rise to the occasion. So, you know, I, I'm kind of eager to see which of these guys is able to get it done for that reason, because I think that they both kind of have been maligned 
in sort of the same way. Yeah, I, and, I, and if I had to answer the question I asked you, I, I think I didn't realize how good and how smart of a striker Aljo is and, and how he's become. You know, it's a credit to him and his great team with Ray Longo. Uh, the evolution, I was behind on that, but it's that, but it's mixed with sort of that championship understanding, a mixture of poison IQ. Like Aljo has the, people hate when I just bring up the intangibles, right? Because they think it's a lazy sort of reach. But Aaron, competition-wise... The talent level is so close at the top that a lot of times it does come down to some of those key intangibles. And the championship medal of Aljo is is cemented. It's proven. We know how smart, how ready this guy is. Do you think O'Malley has it in those same areas? I do. I think that O'Malley has become underrated uh, as a result of the whole persona and him calling for championship fights and and being this kind of bombastic personality it seems to always happen. I feel like it was the same way with McGregor at the time when he was running through everybody. He almost became underrated because people were trying to find all of these different holes and talking about how brash they were and focusing on the persona rather than the skills. And I think that Sean O'Malley's done a good job of kind of diverting that. Like, I think the amount of stuff you see outside of the cage from him that's actually fight-related of him training and, and all of that, like, I think that they kind of keep that close to the vest. They, they don't want people to really know just how good he is until the night of the fight. And I think that's by design. So we'll we'll see how much that rings through on Saturday. But I, I think that the skills of Aljamain have certainly improved. In fact, you mentioned Ray Longo. And I don't think people are talking enough about him. Because if Aljo wins on Saturday, I think Ray Longo is the coach of the year. You look at how oh. many fighters have come out of the Sarah Longo camp. We saw yesterday on Contender Series, their fighter uh, against Cameron Smotherman, an underdog, comes in and, and gets a, a massive first-round win. Uh, you've seen Matt Frivola beat Drew Dober. And and he's become a ranked lightweight this year. Marab Dualishvili, the way that he dominated Piotr Jan. Like, I think that if he gets a win on Saturday, you have to say that Ray Longo is the coach of the year of 2023. And I, I don't I don't know who could could knock him off that perch um, if does, Aljamain does Chris, wins uh, on, on Saturday. Does Chris Weidman need to uh, win to, to cement this this weekend, Aaron? Is that the truth? Or just does he need to walk out in his own power? Well, most of Weidman... Um, most of Weidman's training has happened in like North, in like the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. So yeah, that's Wonder he hasn't Boy been, territory. He hasn't been as embedded with uh, Sarah Longo. I think that he, he did go to New York and train with them for a bit during this camp. But uh, I mean, what 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 a story that would be if Chris Weidman ends up getting a win yeah, after that kind yeah. of a layoff Calls with that, that injury. It'd be pretty incredible. We'll certainly get to that. Uh, Ray Longo also arguably delivered the greatest interview in MK's Room Service Diaries 2.0, acclaimed series, Aaron, back when. We were regularly in the studio. And speaking of old Ray, he caught up with Shaquille Majuri of CBS Sports. You love him in the MK family. He'll be back later this week. But Ray talking about Aljo's stride and evolution coming back from those losses way back and how he's rebounded. Let's hear from the coach right now. The way he came back from that loss to Marlon Moraes, I think that's when I said, you know what, man, this kid's got something. Because a lot of people could have folded they could have never been the same. He got better. He got better, and he had the desire to get better. And the way he bounced back, you know, uh, after the Yon thing was was another thing that, uh, you know, we had a great conversation about the first fight, and he promised me the second fight things would be different, and he held to his word. So the first thing was after the Moraes fight and then after how he bounced back from all the negativity for a year, because I had to take it too, but I'm not the fighter. You know, he had it 10 times harder than me, but. Um, you know, the way he bounced back and beat Jan and then beat Dillashaw, then beat Cejudo. I mean, 
after that fight, I think I really go, this kid is in a stride now. This is the worst time to fight him. That's what I personally believe. And that, that TKO loss to Marais did start this current nine-fight streak. Uh, also, uh, you can watch, by the way, all of Shaq's great interviews in full length on the Shaq MMA YouTube channel. But one more from Coach Ray about what we talked about, that possibility, the 99%. Is Aljo staying or going? What about Marab? I always love hearing from the coach himself. He had some great quotes when we sat down with him a few months back on the RSD. Here's Coach Longo about keeping that chemistry alive there and making the decision moving forward. Especially if he wins, which he will, I think I think he's moving up. Okay. I don't know that for sure, though, but I really don't. But uh, I think he's got such a great relationship. I mean, with Marab, he really wants to see Marab fight for that yeah. title. I mean, this is... I believe these are things. These are things you kind of can't teach people, you know, but you could surround them by other like-minded people to where it becomes a natural thing, I think. But uh, I love it, man. I don't, I don't know. I, if, if he does that, that would be a really, what's the word I'm looking, selflessness act that you could have. I can't and I think, think of another I'm, example of it. Yeah, and I think I think the likelihood of that is really, really up there. Now, Aaron, you know I always like to ask that devil's advocate critical question of, is DC really the greatest friend of all time? Or did he just know better through the multiple Matt sessions with Raising Kane that it would not have gone his way? I think I do echo Longo. This seems to be a very solid brotherly move from Aljo. Yeah, I think so too. But I also think that we have to remember when you get older in your career, moving up in weight classes is never a bad idea. Like, unless it's, you know, one of those kind of last ditch things to hang on, like, I, like Luke Rockhold and Weidman moving up to light heavyweight. Like, I feel like as you get older in the fight game, the things that start to go are the reflexes, the speed. But if you're going to be the naturally faster fighter up a weight class, like John Jones moving up to heavyweight, for example, um, you know, we've seen Anthony Smith move up to light heavyweight. Like, I think that a move to featherweight right now at age 34 for Aljo is the perfect time for him to, to go up. And, and especially with there being so few new contenders being built up at featherweight. I mean, you've got your Ilya Topurias, you've got your Mosar Ivloyevs um, that are being built up. But, but we've seen Volkanovski beat so many of those opponents at featherweight that him going up to featherweight, maybe taking one non-title fight first, and then if he wins that against, maybe a Mosar Ivloyev would be a good opponent for him. Uh, a guy who's a really solid wrestler uh, like Aljo is. Maybe that would be a good test for him to see if he's ready to challenge for the title. But I, I think don't know, that, Aaron. that's all it would take. I think if he does win, if you're the defending champion in the deepest division in the sport and you're moving up, there's a super fight waiting to happen. They just did that with Volkanovski and Mahachev, and it may be the fight of the year, and who knows, we may get it another time. I feel like with a win, though, we got to see Aljo versus Volk, and we got to... We got to... I mean, I know Taporia's knocking on that door, but dude, that... that if, if we have Aljo with 10 straight wins over all those legends in a row, yeah, let's do it. Let's find out if Aljo could be the pound-for-pound pound best, right? Yeah, I mean, you have the two longest reigning champions of the UFC right now, and you put them against each other, I think that's that kind of writes itself. And, you know, he would have a year to, to try to get in there before Luke Thomas's favorite stat knocks on his door, right? The 35 and over, the welterweight and under stat. Man, does that guy like playing When does that he turn two? 35? Like, what's, what's the expiration date here? 
That's that's a when, great when he's question. no longer eligible to win a championship. He's he's thirty five. Uh, he is his birthday. The thirty fifth birthday would be next July thirty first. So he's a okay. young thirty four at the moment, right there. But you know, it must be t- hard if you're Dexy's Midnight Runners or. Delamitri, Aaron, and you only have that one hit. And every time you're playing the county fairgrounds, people are like, hey, if you just want to play that one song over and over and over again, we'd love that. I mean, Luke needs another stat he can go to, right? Yeah, but the stat, I mean, hey, the stat is a great stat. I don't mind him going to it all the time. It's a great stat. The first very very relevant stat. No, indeed. Love, Love some Luke. To close here, you could argue, Aaron, that you're only as good, though, as your sparring partners. Now, we did see Aljamain Sterling sparring with Juicy J, trying to erosa his way into imitating one Sean O'Malley, but you caught a video the, uh, this morning of Aljo doing a YouTube Q&A on his channel with fans talking about sparring partners. This weapon. may determine whether I pick him or not. Let's listen in. The way I've been training, I think if that guy shows up and I get him down early like I do in these sparring sessions... Good luck. I've been sparring with the Bashra brothers and sparring with Julian and Rosa, um, Armando, Getcha, um, Dylan Montello, um, Brian Campbell, uh, Brian Campbell, Charlie Campbell. A lot of good high-level guys, man. So you guys, I, I truly do think you guys are in for a great show. Right, look at that, Aaron. Right on the top of the dome. I, I was fresh on his mind, baby. Right. Well, I mean, if if he's training with the great Brian Campbell, I mean, I think it's a slam dunk that he wins on Saturday. The I'm amount of the amount of uh, the amount of fight knowledge that he's going to just gain through osmosis of of being yes. in the room with you. I mean, I think that that was a very wise choice of him to train with you, BC. Forget thirty five. If he actually trained with me, he'd feel forty five instantly because that's now what I am there. But uh, great main event. Can't wait to see if O'Malley does win though. And let's say he stopped him. We've been waiting for the next. The next person to rise and become that pay-per-view draw, right? We who know who knows about Connor, right? Who the frick knows? Only ask Novitsky if you want answers. Uh, but you think O'Malley takes off? I mean, he gets a stoppage win. Does he take off and become? I mean, in some ways, a a monster face of this promotion. Absolutely. Like if if that's the bar, like monster face of this promotion, then yeah. I mean, in terms of becoming a transcendent star, that's always the the holy grail of mixed martial artists. Um, but we've only seen like three or four fighters do it since the inception of the UFC 30 years ago, right? Like it's not an easy thing to do to break through that way, but I think that he's undoubtedly going to be one of the faces of the company. He might already be one of the faces of the company, but if he wins and he finishes Aljamain Sterling, I mean, sky's the limit and the UFC will have their next star. I think O'Malley's still in his twenties, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I just think that they would be thrilled with that result from a a marketing standpoint and promotional standpoint. Um, but of course the fight's, Aren't uh, aren't scripted, so we got to see how uh, how it plays out. But I mean, if Sean O'Malley even hangs tough with Aljo, and it's like a, a close decision, you can still put Sean O'Malley in a fight with like Marab or Sandhagen or something along those lines for the vacant title. I, I think that we, we need to see how he performs on Saturday night. Very true, the twenty-eight-year-old O'Malley. This is the time we're going to find out for real Saturday night. I can't wait for it. Everyone talking about this main event, Aaron. I, I don't know. Nobody talking about this co-main event. So Nobody. it's going to be m- my favorite division, one one five. And even though defending champion here, Wei, Zhang Weili, who's beginning the first defense of her second reign on top, has only been gone nine months since her last win. To me, it's felt like nothing's been happening in this division. Carla Esparza out with uh, pregnancy. Rose moving up to 125. 
Yes, we've seen wins both over Andrade to risers like Jan Xiaonan and now Tatiana Suarez, but the division has been stuck a little bit. I did think the naming of Amanda Lemos was interesting for the next shot. 36 years old, has won two in a row since being submitted by the aforementioned Andrade, does bring in big power. Aaron, low, low buzz for this one. If you had to counter that, why should people be fired up for this fight Saturday night? Yeah, this might be the most under-the-radar title fight that I can remember in a long time. Like, I, I have a lot of trouble coming up with something where this people aren't talking about this fight at all. Like, I, I haven't heard any buzz about it. I have barely seen any interviews because neither of them speak English as a first language. So you're not seeing them do the kind of press that you would do to promote a title fight. So, you know, you know and I don't think that that takes anything away from the fight itself because Amanda Lemos hits hard and Zhang Veili hits hard. <laughs> Right. So, like, I think that we can still see a very interesting fight here. Now, the question to me is, like, how good is the grappling of Amanda Lemos? We haven't really seen it. We saw that Andrade was able to lock her up in that standing arm triangle that put her out, um, which was one of the the kind of cooler submission wins that we've seen. And it wasn't that long ago that that happened. But uh, like you mentioned, the division had kind of stagnated for a little while. And now it's starting to pick up again. It was a bit of a surprise to hear Lemos announced as the opponent so shortly after Yan Xiaonan had that big win. So... I think that we're going to have to see what happens next in terms of Xiaonan, Suarez, whether they face each other to determine the next title challenger. But um, I do still think this is an intriguing fight for the reason that Amanda Lemos can crack. She has more knockdowns than uh, I think anybody in strawweight history, highest knockdown rate. Um, she brings power to the cage. And if you can if you can hit Zhang Veili, we saw Rose put her out with that head kick. It's an interesting fight to me. I think from an X and O standpoint, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fight itself. But I just feel like there's been such little buzz surrounding it. No, indeed, and 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 I and I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, I I thought they would they should do Sean on next, but I do realize it takes time to bring a fight to China between two Chinese-born fighters, and with Whaley being off that long, they wanted to get back get her back in. You're right. It's probably going to be more excited than we realize coming in. On the UFC rankings page, they hold Alexa Grasso as the current number one pound-for-pound female fighter. Aaron, on my own top five for CBS Sports, I currently have Zhang Weili, though. Uh, Where do you stand on sort of the female pound-for-pound run at the moment with Amanda Nunes stepping away from the sport? I still think it's Shevchenko. (laughs) I mean, like, one loss does not a career make, right? Like, if you look at the body of work, like, if you were to say... Well, look at the odds. I mean, Shevchenko was like a minus 250 favorite or something along those lines against Grasso in the rematch. So I don't know. Like, what, what does pound for pound even mean? Is it like you beat the pound for pound person, so now you're the best pound for pound? It didn't happen with Sometimes. Islam and, uh, and Volkanovski, right? So I don't know. I mean, I would still say that Shevchenko is probably still the, the, the best female fighter in the UFC that's not retired with, with Nunes leaving, right? So even though she's not the champion, which is what would make it weird to vote for her, but at the same time, like, I still I think that, that's how I would... Uh, I got to counter you on that. I think there's a major difference here between the Volkanovsky situation. One, that was outside of his division in a dare to be great. Two, you could argue he won it. And three, there's no argument. Shevchenko got finished. She got submitted. So in that regard, I do get what you're saying on the on the body of work does ha- hold up very well. And obviously the odds makers believing it was more fluky. But I think, I always say this, I think a lot of people misinterpret pound for pound. I think too many people dismiss it. To me, it's the true currency. If In the moment, right now, who's the best right now? Your resume gets you to the table in a lot of ways, but it's who's the best right now. I think there's a vote out there for Wei Lee. So let's talk about this reinvention. Two losses to Rose Namajunas. 
knocks out Joanna spectacularly in the rematch. But Aaron, the way she took the title from Arsparza, I mean, it it showed you that there's been a try. I mean, you can go back to the second Rose loss, to be fair. A close decision loss that there were some that liked Wei Li in the end, although I think Rose did deserve it. D- due to the evolution of the wrestling there that we saw, even in that in that conversion from one fight, this first Rose fight to the second, we saw how much better you, uh, Wei Li can be with it because she works so hard and constantly evolves. But two wins after that and the destruction of Asparza, she's better than she ever was. And I don't even think we know how good she actually is, Aaron. Yeah, she continues to get better and better with each fight. But again, if you're talking about pound for pound, like why isn't Rose ranked ahead of Zhang Weili? Because she lost to Esparza in, in the most uneventful fight in history <clears> when <throat> basically nothing happens. She has two wins over Zhang Weili. So what, why wouldn't she be ranked in the pound for pound ahead of, of Zhang Weili? Just because Zhang has the two. belt. Like Zhang never I have her at two. And I think be- if I'm going to stand true to what I say, that it's more of a snapshot of the moment, you can't put out the performance Rose did against Esparza and not... Not there has to be a receipt for that, right? In the public consciousness. So to me, that's why I penalize her for that performance. Yeah. So my my look, the whole point is just to say this: Whaley's great, and she's only getting better in her mid thirties. By the way, she is a favorite against Lamosh, but it is not by a ton, Aaron. So let's hit that. Our friends over here at Caesars minus two fifty Lamosh plus two fifty Lamosh minus three twenty. So you could say, oh, three to one favorite. That's pretty big. But there seems to be a respect within those odds that if we're as good as I'm telling you Whaley is, hey, we saw her get head kicked and KO'd. They're respecting Lamos's power decently here in the way they're setting this up. Yeah, I mean, they're not boxing odds, but they're, they're still, she's still a pretty big favorite in terms of uh, championship-level UFC you know, fights. But uh, at the same time, I still think that, that that's exactly it. It's like she has that great equalizer with the power. Um, does Amanda Lemos? But how old is that? Amanda Lemos? Is over thirty-five, I think. So maybe the thirty-six. Should, yeah. yeah. So maybe the odds should continue going the other way uh, towards Whaley, who is not yet thirty-five, uh, based on does that. Does Luke's that, stat that apply stat. to females too, Aaron? Or no? I would imagine so. I mean, how old is Shevchenko? Did Shevchenko lose before she turned thirty-five? I think she's thirty-four. Okay. And Nunes, these- I think, was thirty-four when she lost to Pena. So I'm not sure how many yeah. women over thirty-five. Have uh, competed. I mean, Esparza might have been 35 when she beat Rose for the championships. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure either way. But I think it still does apply. Well, uh, Whaley. It applied to 30... certain weight classes. That's what it was, right? Like it. it... Sure. Yeah. That. Well, I, it was I can't welterweight and under. Classes were part of that stat. Yeah, it was welterweight and under on the men's side, but obviously that would encumber the entire female division roster setup. Whaley turned 34, by the way, three days ago. So happy birthday out to her. Let's see what we got this weekend from a strategy standpoint. Uh, how do you think Whaley's going to address? How should she address this, knowing the danger? I mean, you, you got to take this to the ground. You got to. Go the Corey Sanhagen route. Path of least resistance. I agree with you 100%. Because if this is on the ground, we haven't seen much from Lamos there. And we know how, how dominant Whaley can be from top. So I think that that's probably the way you, you do it. And you try to find the submission. I, I don't think that you try to, to gunsling with um, Lamos. You don't go to the OK Corral with her because that's her best path to victory. So. If you want to retain the championship and you want all of the, the perks that come with being the champion, I think you take the path of least resistance. Lemos comes in ranked number five, but she did stop Michelle Waterson. And then the Marina Rodriguez stoppage was sort of a reminder, wake-up call that she's here. And uh, we're going to find out if she can upset. I mean, look, there's been some wild upsets, man, over the past 18 months where I now don't doubt anything 
But I do feel firmly solid here that this is going to be a surviving advance for Zhang Wei Li, who just has more trade. I mean, she's a tank in there, and she's so game, right? She had to, to come back from that head kick the way she did, even though she lost the next fight, but to just constantly be evolving. I think we're watching a special fighter who, like I said, still in the midst of her prime right now, and not young, but but is putting all the pieces together. So uh, I'm looking forward to this, even though there ain't no, there ain't no buzz, Aaron. There ain't nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing, indeed. All right, let's talk about Buzz here. We're talking about Ian Machado Gary, the 25-year-old Irishman. Uh, thought he was facing Jeff Neal, but hey, not a bad replacement when you're going to get Neil Magny for what he represents to this welterweight division as a true elite gatekeeper and litmus test. Aaron, the question is this. Is Gary ready for this type of challenge? I think he is. I mean, he rose to the occasion in, in his last fight. Um and really did a number on Daniel Rodriguez. And I think that with a short notice, Neil Magny, I understand why Gary is a favorite. Now, should he be this big of a favorite against a guy as well-rounded as game as, as Neil Magny? That's where it starts to get a little bit tricky because Neil Magny is so well-rounded, so skilled, and also has skills that can test areas of Ian Gary's game that we haven't really seen tested that much, such as the grappling, um, how he deals with fighting at range for a, a longer period of time. The, there's so many different tricks and savvy veteran moves that Neil Magny is going to bring to the table that makes this such an intriguing fight for um, Ian Gary. I, I think Jeff Neal would have been a tougher challenge for him. Sure. I think that would yeah. have been um, a, a stiffer test, but I don't the think danger. that Jeff Neal is as well-rounded as Neil Magny. No, you're right. And the KO danger there of what Neil, who looks who looks to be rejuvenated from his own setbacks and, and back in great form, uh, but the change in opponent, you're still going to get that tough test but it's a minus 490 favorite for Gary against the short turnaround Magni at plus 370, who just won against Phil Rowe back in June. I mean, Magni will always sort of juggle wins and losses. He'll surprise people when you count him out. He'll be tough in there. But are we going to be... If Sean O'Malley wins, yeah, he's the next big star and he steals the headlines. But I think there's potential here that Ian Gary could get a ton of headlines with another breakthrough performance. I thought the D-Rod fight was going to be tough for him. And then he had one of those viral moments, one of those, oh, shit, man, this this guy's freaking legit. I don't know, Aaron. I'm starting to believe the aura that comes off of him. At first, it was sort of like, oh, you're doing Connor dances. What are you doing? Are you that guy? For as much as we don't know about his game over the long form, you know, going the distance against a very quality opponent, being being in a fight where it's not on his terms and having to make adjustments, that aura is speaking to me a bit. We may have some. We may have something here, Aaron. We may really. I'm admittedly blinded by the aura of Ian Gary, uh, or Ian Machado Gary, rather. Like I haven't spoken to him yet this week. I'm interviewing him tomorrow. So if you were to ask me on like Friday about this fight, I bet you my perspective will have changed because nobody speaks with the kind of confidence that Ian Machado Gary does. Like when you speak to him, you he he kind of like permeates your mind with the fact that you just, at the end of the interview, think to yourself, like, there's just no way this guy can lose. He has that factor. Like, Connor kind of had that as well early on in his career, where he spoke with such conviction about what he was going to do, about how he was going to make these things happen and, and manifest his destiny. And Ian Gary has that same aura about him, where when you sit down and talk to him, or you're, you're standing next to him and you're looking into his eyes, he looks into your eyes with with a conviction that you, you seldom see from fighters. Um, now, none of that really matters when it, it actually comes time to get into the cage and face a guy as skilled as Neil Magny, where he's going to throw a variety of different attacks at you. Um, but 
I, I do think that even though he does speak with that kind of conviction, he does also have a strong self-awareness about him. Like when I spoke to him after his, his win over Song Kanan, he, he knew exactly what he had done wrong. He knew where he had messed up, like the moment that it happened and was able to immediately kind of bounce back from it and win that fight. But like his, his awareness, uh, you know, self-awareness in that moment of like, I did this wrong. Let's like, you know, dial back in and go and beat this guy. Like he has a lot of these intangibles that I think the greats have. Now, whether or not yeah. he has the skills to back it up, I think Saturday is going to answer a lot of those questions because against D-Rod, I think that his path to victory was a little bit more pronounced. Against Neil Magny, he's a very, very difficult puzzle to solve, especially on this kind of short notice. No doubt. I mean, I think the odds are a little bit too wide, but there does seem to be a big belief in everything that we're saying about Gary that forget the odds, forget what we don't know about him. What we do know about him is striking. It is it is overwhelming, but um, Magny has not been stopped since 2017. The only two to get him on strikes, I'm sorry, stop by strikes. We've seen him submitted a couple times, Gilbert Burns recently, but Ponzinibbio and Lorenz Larkin, the only two to get him on strikes. If Gary does just that, it, it's it's a potential breakthrough moment for him. The Irish in Boston would be going wild. And it's 25, man. He's fun. He's another guy, another guy on this list, right? I mean, I need like a, a, a pound for pound prospects list that's not just based on the potential ability, but the buzz, because like Chamaya's been ahead of that list for a while, rightfully so. But this guy's creeping up. Luke's always got um, Shavkat up there. Yeah, very Shavkat's high. Do you have there. Do you have any bone airs for for any certain men or women in that direction? Where you're like, uh, if I got to put money on the stock of this guy based on what we know, this is my guy. Natalia Silva, I think, her, should be on yes. that list. She's really, really solid. Um, there are so many right now that, like, off the top of my head, it's hard for me to remember them. Um, yeah. like I'm trying to think of, of who else we've got in these divisions that, uh, that are coming up. Uh, it's a tough question for me to answer when I put on the spot, but, um, I know, like, I think, I think the world of Natalia Silva, I think she's really, really good. Um, I mean, you can't call Tatiana Suarez a prospect anymore, but I think that she's, uh, I, she's been on that list for a long time, right? Like she's somebody who, uh, I think you don't really need to be convinced of anymore. Um, but yeah, I, there, there are a lot right now of prospects that I think have, a lot of really good, well-rounded skills that are, are going to be coming up in the coming years that are really going to amaze us. Indeed, indeed. Uh, ke- keeping on this main card, we get Damon Blackshear on short notice one week later against Mario Bautista. Can he uh, continue to build on on the buzz off of his debut, UFC debut win via Twister, just the third submission of such in the history of the promotion. But you will get a lot of eyes on this pay-per-view opener at Bantamweight, Marlon Chito Vera welcoming Battle-tested, always difficult Pedro Munoz. Not going to get Rob Font versus Song Yidong. Not going to get, you know, Cody Garbrandt like we mentioned. But, dude, when Cheeto Vera shows up, it's big-time theater for sure. How important, based on O'Malley of all people saying, yeah, I'm rematching Cheeto if he wins for the title if I come through this weekend, is this fight for Cheeto to hold serve? It is of the utmost importance that he wins this fight. And the reason why is because... If he wins and Sean O'Malley wins, every bantamweight contender right now is injured. Corey Sanhagen's injured. Marab is injured. Um, Umar, I think, is injured. I don't even know if you can consider him a true contender yet at this point uh, either. I still think he needs that kind of marquee win. He can sneak in there. If they need a title fight in December, January, Cheeto Vera can definitely sneak in there to get a title shot against Sean O'Malley. It is of the utmost importance that he beats 
Pedro Munoz, who's a very, very tough out for absolutely anybody. You saw that he won the first round against uh, Sean, o- Sean O'Malley before that eye poke on the judges' scorecards. Um, I think that Sean O'Malley was kind of starting to turn the corner in that fight. But regardless of that, Pedro Munoz, extremely tough, coming off of a very, very good win. Um, I, I think that Cheeto Vera needs this win very, very, very badly. And I think that he's favored in this fight for a reason. I think that right now, Not skill for skill, lot. he probably gets the win here. Not by a lot, though. Minus 190 by Caesars. Vera, the favorite, plus 160 for Munoz. And a reminder, of course, Vera defeated O'Malley back in 2020, but had that uh, impressive four-fight win streak, two big knockouts in there of veterans Cruz and Edgar. But he got solved against Corey Sanhagen in March. That's fair to say, Aaron. I know it went down as a split decision, but it seemed pretty decisive and almost kind of disappointing in a way. So it's not just a win to keep your name in there for the potential of that big money rematch, but we do need to see a a, a mea culpa in some ways from Cheeto after that fight. Well, that's why, A, I think that the odds are minus 190. I think they should be longer, to be honest. I think that he should be a bigger favorite. Uh, The reasons he, I think, is taking away from how skilled he really is. And again, I think that's why the time is absolutely right now for Cheeto, that he needs to get this win because... I think he can sneak in there, but I also think that there is a certain ceiling for him when he starts to face a lot of these top prospects that maybe this is, you know, again, the perfect timing, lightning in a bottle where he can face a guy that he's already beaten in Sean O'Malley. But again, a lot of different things have to happen in order for that to play out that way. Indeed, indeed. What with, What is set up right now to be your featured ESPN plus in ESPN2 preliminary bout is the comeback of the former champion at middleweight, Chris Weidman, age 39, out two years since the absolutely destructive, broken, what, fibula and tibula on his right leg against Uriah Hall. He has lost six of eight coming in. I mentioned he's 39. Aaron, most guys after that type of injury, which of course had the ultimate ironic twist being that Silva broke the same parts of his other leg against Weidman in their title rematch years earlier, uh, most people aren't going to attempt to come back from this. You can argue most people shouldn't attempt to come back like this, especially when you consider having lost six of eight. And, you know, we're not talking about Weidman anymore in contention or big-time fights. But, boy, do you have to respect the warrior inside of him to make this comeback fight against Brad Tavares. To not, I, I don't think it's about the critics, Aaron. This is about himself to prove that he can still do this. Um, this is a dangerous challenge in a lot of ways, but w- what does this say about Weidman to you? Yeah, I mean, this is a true testament to the human spirit that he was able to make a recovery and, and even not even make the recovery, but even attempt to make the recovery. I think that alone he should be absolutely lauded for because like you said, he's 37 when the injury happens. You know that it's going to be a long road to recovery and it seemed like right after the injury happened, he was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to recover. I'm going to come back. I'm going to fight in the UFC again. And for him to come back and do it, I just think you have to applaud the guy, win or lose. I mean, this could be very well be his last fight if he does lose. But just to be able to go and make the walk and, and come back after that kind of an injury is just, again, I don't know how anybody can't be inspired by that. Yeah, I, I had to, like, sort of swallow the fears I have for him and just say, you know, uh, I, man, I got a lot of respect. If we're talking about Vegas, though, plus 235, Weidman, your betting underdog, minus 285, Brad Tavares, who is not young, but a 35, but man, we know, uh, despite a two-fight losing skid that he's on, losing a decision to DDP and then getting knocked out by Bruno Silva, you don't mess around with Tavares. So Aaron, he should win this. Good story aside, he should win this, right? Well, 
I was talking to some friends that said, like, these are like, I dare you odds. It's like you look at Weidman, former champion, making the comeback. They're like, I dare you to take him at this price. He's like, that's the kind of price where you're like, wow, I mean, it's not like Tavares is a spring chicken either. And Weidman's making this inspiring comeback and his teammates fighting uh, on the headliner. Like, there's all of these things where like, yeah, Weidman has the skills to beat Brad Tavares, at least the Weidman that I remember. So it's one of those kind of I dare you spots. Like, we're going to give you good odds. We're going to bet against Chris Weidman being able to win another fight in the UFC. And you can, you can bet against us on that if you'd like. And I, I honestly think that's what those odds kind of indicate. It's like, if, if you think Chris Weidman has a shot, you take him at these odds, right? It's plus 235. But it's like, we dare you. We dare you to try to take some money from, from the sports books here. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it, it's hard not to share, though, honestly. You got to be pulling for Weidman. We just had a great moment with Robbie Lawler after a great moment from Amanda Nunes. Now, granted, those were retirement fights. One a surprise, one we knew about, but the way that it ended and the joy, it felt good to have something that so wholesome in this violent sport. Combat sports in general, you don't get a lot of great stories, right? You get inspiration comebacks, but you don't get a lot of good feelings, man. I want this inspirational comeback to to give us that good feeling. Uh, for Chris Weidman, I, you know, I'd love to see him get that. And, I, and I've... They used to call me a Weidman hater, Aaron. I, I really did not believe even, even I, you know, Aaron, if you, it, you know, like when people are on their deathbed and then they like, you know, reveal the truth, right? You know, like the guy, the people, those government people, like, you know, Luke Thomas's dad's ex-colleagues who actually know who killed JFK, you know what I mean? They'll like whisper in the ear of their significant other. On my deathbed, I'll still tell you that Weidman never beat Silva, that, you know, Anderson lost twice. Um but, you know, this would be good for old Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm cheering for him. I'm pulling for yeah, him. This is the be. most that Bostonians will cheer for a New Yorker maybe ever on Saturday. Ever. Like, I think that that's, go. They, they're going to have to swallow their pride on that one and, and give Weidman the kind of adulation that he deserves here. And I will say, I was the biggest Anderson Silva guy. Like, I, he was, he, like, when I was not covering the sport and I was just a fan, like, I was an Anderson Silva guy. And I picked Weidman in both of those fights. I, I just thought that, like, his time had kind of come. And I, I was actually right on that. But so I, I can never be accused of being a wide manator. Yeah, indeed, right there. Uh, uh, the rest of this card, we do we did get the moved fight. It was supposed to be on an earlier card, but RoboCop Gregory Rodriguez is going to take on Dennis Tiulian. Um, I'm f- circling someone we mentioned earlier, Natalia Silva, in here against Andrea Lee at Women's Flyweight. Uh, Silva from Brazil. Uh, I said it last on Monday. I feel like we, we keep seeing these debuting Brazilian female fighters that are coming onto the scene and making noise. I mean, maybe that's a, a good omen for Amanda Lemos on Saturday and her title hopes. But yeah, Natalia Silva could be for real. Is there anyone else you're circling on this card in that same regard? By the way, uh, Gregory Rodriguez is Brazilian, so it's actually Hobocop. I just thought I'd correct you on Hobocop. Oh, that is brilliant. I thought I'd correct that you on that. That is brilliant, um, by the way. Hobocop. That, that's Ronaldo-level brilliant. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I thought you. I'd just correct you on, on the nickname there, just in case you're not familiar with the dialect there. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for Natalia Silva. And as a Canadian, I got to root for Brad Katona, becoming potentially the, se- the first fighter to win two seasons of The Ultimate Fighter. He's the only Canadian to ever win uh, a standard season of The Ultimate Fighter. And he could. He, I spoke to him earlier today. And uh, he has coined the phrase "ultimate fighter." He wants to become the first ultimate wow. fighter. I like that a little bit. It's a little. It's Shout lame, out to I like that a little bit. Superman. right there. Uh, I think I'm doing uh, a UFC 292 post fight show for more. I should be on Saturday night, so tune in for more more information on that. But uh, yeah, I'm fired up, Aaron. I'm fired up for this weekend. This is another big one. This should be good across the and board. The Mon have- Black Shear could become the, uh, the the fastest to win. Uh, two fights back to back in uh, UFC history in seven days. Dude, 
if he does it with another twister, maybe he can go on the, a Makiatine, or not Makiatine, uh, uh, the dude, the dude with the Corey, uh, the, with the... OSP? Damn. No, the bon, dude, the McKenzie, McK- the McKenzatine. Remember when he was, you know, he had the one gimmick? Oh, Cody, Cody McKenzie. Yeah, there you go. There you go, man. I always ruin my my old and recycled jokes every single time. Uh, topic number two, Aaron, UFC 292 is going to be a big one this weekend. But yesterday I was in New York City, Times Square for the first of a two-day coast-to-coast press tour for what's going down on Showtime Pay-Per-View, September 30th, T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas, for the first time in men's boxing history Two reigning and defending four-belt undisputed champions will face off against one another. Yeah, it's a big deal. Canelo Alvarez defending his 168-pound title against current 154-pound undisputed champion Jermel Charlo. Aaron, this fight is great. We all thought it was going to be Jermall, the brother, the middleweight champion, unbeaten, the WBC uh, title holder. But he's not mentally ready after going through some setbacks. He's been out of the ring for two years. Jermel Charlo has been out of the ring himself for 15 months since knocking out Brian Castaño in their undisputed title rematch. But now moving up two weight divisions, they faced off yesterday in New York City. I hope we can show video of this face-off. And for everyone talking about the true, cool, daring-to-be-great elements here of Charlo moving up two weight divisions, he's always been big for 154. Canelo's always been a small middleweight. I wonder if size won't be. I mean, size could be a factor certainly in the in the in the punch uh, chin area, recuperative, all of that. But this got me even more fired up when these two faced off. Aaron, I know you're more on the MMA side, but this has to be the type of fight that's going to get your attention. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Canelo fights, it certainly has my attention, especially when it's against a guy who's a worthy adversary. And I think in this stage of his career, this is a. Uh, it's not Benavidez, but it's probably about as good of a, a matchup as you can have for Canelo to, to really test where he's at right now. And, and that's what makes us exciting. And I think that this is the Charlo twin that I, I would prefer to see him face uh, under yes. these circumstances. And it makes it a very, very exciting fight. To, again, just to kind of measure where Cane- Canelo's at in this stage of his career. Now, Canelo, both fighters are 33 years old, but Canelo... There's been a lot of talk that he might not be the same guy anymore, still firmly in the midst of the pound-for-pound rankings. But, Aaron, you remember two years ago when he became that undisputed champion last time on Showtime Pay-Per-View against Caleb Plant, knocking him out. We were He was not only number one with a bullet pound-for-pound, we were like, did he pass Chavez yet for best Mexican fighter ever? Like, you know, Canelo, already the face of the sport, seemed to be inhuman just a couple years back. I did like yesterday at the press conference where when fate when asked about that by brian custer he said look i know the reason why i was like that you're not going to see that anymore and raul marquez my showtime colleague asked canelo about that when we talked to him afterwards and i like what he said he said look i I wasn't able to train at full level due to a hand injury he just recently had that hand surgery to fix it so he believes he'll be fully back the fights we're talking about of course is the trilogy bout with Gennady golovkin which we thought could be this old man war and it kind of just turned out yeah canelo got the win and then, of course, his homecoming victory over John Ryder, where he dominated, but he wasn't able to get Ryder out of there, and Ryder kind of rallied a bit at the end, and it's sort of like, is he that same dude? I know you tune into Canelo fights. At 33, for a guy who turned pro at age 15, for a guy who's been a pro for 18 years, do you feel like he still could be that same guy? That it might be over, over a bit over to say, oh, you know, look, there's proof he's past it. I think he is past it. 
I, you know, I hate to say that because I think Canelo is a, a legend and a, a tremendous boxer, and I really hope he proves me wrong. But just, just from watching that, that third Triple G fight, it just felt like something was missing in there in terms of, you know, how, how much he was willing to attack an opponent. I, I just felt like we're not seeing that same old Canelo that we saw back in the day where he was just had that killer instinct. And I, maybe it comes back in this fight. Um, I had predicted Bivol to beat him. I was telling people, bed, take bed, uh, Bivol by decision. Uh, th- that ended up playing out because the, the, the size was too much to overcome. I think you were also in the same boat going sure. with Bivol. Uh, didn't, didn't work out when uh, you picked against uh, uh, Inoue a couple weeks ago when, when he was moving up. <laughs> but uh, in this situation, uh, I think that we're going to see um, what Canelo still has in the tank. And I think that that's going to be what we learn from this fight because this is a really, really worthy adversary. Oh, yeah. I mean, Charlo is he's not only one of those guys that we've always wanted to see Canelo in against somebody whose foot speed and hand speed is on the level of what they bring as a as a one punch finisher. And that's what Jamel Jamel Charlo can be, but also has boxing IQ, which he has. And let's also be fair about Jamel's true calling. He rises to the occasion. When he, you know, he does have the loss to Tony Harrison in a disputed decision and the draw against Castaño the first time around where me, like most people, thought Castaño had done enough to win. But, you know, Aaron, we ask of this about the great champions in either combat sport. What do you do when you get that second chance? He knocked both out in rematches to, to have that, that same, you know, asterisk to his resume that Lennox Lewis does where, yeah, we've seen him lose but he beat everybody he's ever been in the ring with because of how he rises when it when his back is against the wall. That's what I really want to see from Jamel in this fight. Uh, can he be a bigger threat than some realize who are maybe focusing too much on that that supposed size difference? But I was out there with Raul Marquez and NBA great Steven Jackson of Showtime's All the Smoke. We had a chance to chat with both fighters. I want to play a clip here. Here's uh, uh, Canelo talking about this factor, Aaron. We thought this was going to be potentially a contentious face-off because of both Charlo brothers' history of going from zero to 60 in about a half second, it wasn't. Let's hear from Big Red. There was a lot of respect up there from the face-off. Did you, does that surprise you at all? Uh, yeah, I, I'm a little surprised. But, uh, I, I, I like it. I like it because, you know, when two fighters are 100% on, on, on the fight. No, I know everybody likes drama and, 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 and like to see we talk chat about each other but uh you know i like this kind of press conference because uh, there is when you when when you find out is 100 percent on the on the fight right and i like it well let's talk Aaron, we did see that same sort of respect between spence and crawford outside of a few one-liners are you on the side of the street that like hey man we all love a good trash talk war we all love conor mcgregor but this whole respect Bushido, let's be professional thing still works and still sells if the fight's good enough. Yeah, I think that that's exactly the case. Like, if, if the fight's good and it speaks for itself, I don't think you need the, the histrionics that necessarily go into it. And another interesting note, I believe that this fight is going to be kind of unopposed on September 30th. I don't think there's a, a UFC event that night. So I think that it gives a, a, a good opportunity for a lot of the MMA fans to kind of sit back and enjoy the sweet science for, uh, for one night when uh, they don't have to you know, worry about covering a, a UFC event or, or watching a UFC event if you're a fan. Uh, it's just a big, big platform for both of these athletes, and I think that one of them is really going to take advantage of that moment. And you know, if Canelo does win, I think you can start setting up a lot more monster fights with him for the years to come, and he, his earning potential is just going to be outrageous.
Oh, yeah, it always is. But this is his first of three fights on his new PBC deal. He had said, potentially, hey, if I beat Jermel, maybe I'll take on Jamal, who I was next, who I was supposed to fight. Now, uh, this was part of the topic, of course, because Canelo now does have to shift. Now, the, the Charlo brothers are similar in abilities in a lot of ways, but they are also different. Jamal Charlo, the, middle, the undefeated WBC middleweight champion, is bigger, is a little bit more of power puncher as opposed to the boxer. Jermel can do it all, but Jermel has kind of settled in of late to be almost a Canelo-like fighter in the fact that he's being more of the calculated counterpuncher in that regard. So I did wonder, talking to Canelo about changing the strategy for both brothers. He's got some good answers to our questions. Let's go one more time back to Big Red. I got a question. Since we're talking about the twins, Jermel, Jermal, which one do you think is better? I think Jermel is, is, is a better fighter. Uh, I don't I don't know yet because yes. I'm not being in the <laughs> ring <laughs> uh, uh, yet, but, uh, uh, but I think Jermel is, is, a, is a better fighter. That's, that's, that's what I think. Yeah. Uh, Why? Because his skills, uh, he fought with better oppos opposition, opposition, opposition. So that's 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 why. By the way, your English is getting way better, man. Uh, thank yeah. you. I we try. could talk. Hey, we could hang out now. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best, and I I never take uh, take some tequila shots. <laughs> <laughs> I never take lessons. I just uh, saw the TV in English and talk with my friends in English, and I, I'm. I'm no. I don't care if I make mistakes. I think right. that's that's the that's way you learn, right? right? Right. So I'm, Canelo, you, you've been solid. You've been solid at 168. You know, also as a light heavyweight. Do you think Jermel is getting a little bit over his head, thinking that he could move up two weight divisions and defeat Canelo Alvarez? I don't know what he's thinking, to be honest. And I don't care. I just care about right. how I, I'm gonna train and I'm gonna prepare myself for the best, Charlo. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think that size difference isn't going to be as big of a factor. Obviously, if Jermel can't take Canelo's punch and Canelo's a, a, a big puncher at 68, then I'm going to be proven an idiot and it will have a factor. But I'm talking more of the physicality in the trenches. Yes, Canelo's going to be thicker, but it is going to be interesting to see, in my opinion, how big Jermel comes in. That was one thing I did ask him. You know, because if you're going to put on a ton of muscle, Aaron, and move up, that's always going to make it difficult if you're going to cut back down. And Jermel knows that Terrence Crawford called him out in the midst of finishing Errol Spence in the ring in their super fight a few uh, months back. And boy, could you imagine how big a fight, again, another fight of undisputed champion against undisputed champion that we could have. That I do wonder what Jermel's strategy will be physically of, do I try to come in quick and, and, and smaller? Or will I need some of that build to, to fight in the trenches? Yeah, I mean, we talk about the earning potential of Canelo. I mean, uh, imagine what a win for Charlo will do here. I mean, the, now you've got a massive super fight on your hands, right? So it's big business, man. I mean, like, that, that's so big. what's been great about boxing this year is we're like, we're seeing so many great matchups being manifested right now at a time where the biggest criticism on boxing was that the, the big matches haven't been happening. I feel like aside from, you know, Fury and Usyk, which doesn't look like that's going to be happening this year, uh, it still feels like almost all of the biggest boxing matchups uh, that are out there are being made. And again, I, I mean, Benavidez, Canelo is another one that we're kind of missing the boat on. But again, Canelo's got a really worthy adversary this time around. For sure. Uh, for sure. This has been the year of the super fight. Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. It's like a no hitter. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just let it keep going. I do have one more clip. I want to get Jamel Charlo's side of it. He was very mature in his presentation, very confident, of course, 
But I really like the detailed answers from Jermel. You're about to hear about what this means to him and some of his own reflection on how people look at him. Remember, we all thought he was going to come in here and push Canelo and start something. He's a little bit different nowadays heading into the biggest fight of his career. Let's hear it. Now, Mel, I know you got a lot of tools in your toolbox. Yeah. Can you tell us one of the most important ones that you're going to use that's going to defeat Canelo? I know that jab going to be active. Mm -hmm. That jab got to yes. be active, you know. Lateral movement really got to be active as well. So we can't just sit there and, and uh, take shots either. You know what I'm saying? It's, a, it's about being smart in there. So uh, using my high IQ will we'll, we'll, we'll definitely put this fight uh, in my hands. We, we don't have to talk about really getting into it because you're fighting Canelo Alvarez. Like, so you have you have the, the respect for him. We know who Canelo is. Yeah. But going into this fight, as for a legacy and as for family. Right. I, I know I know that's what you're thinking about. How, how important is that for you to, to not only take this fight for a legacy fight, but also stand up and to, and, and to do something great again for the, the Lions uh, promotion and for the Charlo family? And the culture. You know culture. what I'm saying? And, and the culture, culture. exactly. So and and protect us because we need yeah. one. Right, right. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we need one. Hey, if y'all put it on my back, man, I don't need a cane, baby. I right. got it. So, and, and I think of it that way. Um, I'm going to hold it down for us. You know what I'm saying? And... and I'm gonna make sure that I represent as well, right. and 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 this is it. You know what I'm saying? And I don't need to be in there like like Canelo said. I don't got to trash talk. Right. I don't got to do all that. Right. You know what I'm saying? They, you know me. You know my attitude, and I, I wish that I would have never presented such a negative or bad energy. To, but this is just who I am. Right. So right. I'm gonna give y'all what it is. If you right. piss me off, I'm gonna give you what, what you right. what you ask for. <laughs> right. You know what I'm right. saying? Nothing wrong so, with that, man. Right. Right. Yeah. I like that. Very introspective out of there. But one key thing he said strategically to take note of, if there's been any criticism of Jermel at the elite level at times, doesn't throw enough punches, can be too selective in looking to counter with that one big knockout shot. For him to say, my jab will be the key, it does have to give you some confidence to the idea of what type of strategy could that he could use to give Canelo issues. This is going to be an interesting fight, Aaron. I'm dialed in. I'm ready for it, brother. All right? Okay, that's a fashionable guy, Charlo. I like that outfit he was wearing. I mean, I know I'm getting veering off course rug? here. But, yeah, Aaron, solid. was that I a like, drug like rug? That we were debating that. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like the lot. look a lot. I think it's it's a solid look. I mean, hey, if you you put this on his back, he doesn't need a cane. I like that line, too. No, no and I like, also, way, credit to you, a lot better than Canelo's pajamas, bro. You do right? a great no. job at, uh, at when you're on camera, shifting between looking at the interview subject and the audience. I think you just, people don't notice this kind of stuff if, unless they're really familiar with the, the format. But I've just got to give you a... Uh, a pat Thank on you. the back Thank on that you. one. I, I, I'm a big fan in this game of, of um, for as much as I'm looked at at times on this show as a clown, of working on my fundamentals and in the, in the, in the basics, really, right? Because that, that is, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Aaron. Same back to you. Uh, that is our two main fight topics, Aaron. But, you know, you and I also have other interests beyond just, like, cage fighting and stuff. You and I are absolute music nerd bombers, and we used to have a segment. In fact, I think they made a t-shirt about it one time where you and I look through our collection and say, you know, what you rocking on your iPod right now? What are you spinning on the needle, bro? Show me. Let's take part, provided it's consensual, into some vinyl intercourse. Yeah. <laughs> Spin the black circle. I like Indeed. It. Hey. It's been a long time, Aaron, since we've rock and rolled like this where people, you know, I mean, I, I have to believe, and I know this for a fact because we do have great music fans in the MK, MK sphere. Some They've sent me some records. They're such great music fans. They've given me gifts. N Luke's taste for for abortion rock, for, for extreme death metal, 
It just does. I mean, for as like, that guy is so sophisticated and intelligent and he's an influencer on certain things. Like you ever see this guy order on a menu? This guy knows what he wants. Why does he like that shit, Aaron? Yeah, yeah I, I think that that's a good way of looking at it. You know, did I notice, by the way, there's like a 90s and 2000s reference counter that, that comes up when you reference? See, I'm, a, I'm an audio listener of, of MK, which is like I listen to Have You Seen This Ish on Mondays, like the audio version of it, and try to envision oh what's happening in the clips. So when I see these counters and like kind of graphic effects, like it's, it's all new to me. Yeah, yeah, How long great. has that counter been around for? Because you, you make countless references to 90s uh, and 2000s since, on everything. Since show. the very beginning, Aaron. Thank you for watching. Okay. Great program. Right, listen, like I said, I'm a, I'm a listener of the show. I listen to every podcast, but I'm not a big, like, I don't sit down and watch the show. Because I like to listen at 1.75 speed and, and get all of my podcasts uh, digested as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we are both on our own uh, paths and journeys and the bands and genres and albums that we are stuck to at the moment. Uh, shout out, by the way, to MK listener Corey Marlin for firing out at me the uh, the Kid A from Radiohead. Aaron, I am deep on Kid A and Radiohead. I, 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 I'm giving it like three months of my time to really massage it and get there. But for the purposes of vinyl intercourse here, for the nerds that are still left listening, we want to present uh, one to two sort of records, albums here that we are into at the moment. Uh, Aaron, are you frozen? Do you have... Are you? They're telling me to stand by. We may have had technical difficulties here. Maybe Luke haunting us from the vacation spot at the moment standing by uh we will present two album wrecks i'm gonna go first right off the top unless aaron's ready do we have him no okay oh i hear from him i hear from him there we don't have his picture yet. all right i'm gonna go with this aaron my first uh vinyl intercourse music recommendation is this here's what's awesome about this you actually, as a great friend, sent me this record, but it came a few months after my good friend Bogo, my best friend in the world, was like, dude, I know how much you like psychedelic folk and psychedelic country and sort of that in-between and genres. Why don't you have Sturgill Simpson's 2014 Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music record? And Aaron, you and I are such great music nerds. We didn't even have to talk to each other. You're like, yo, here, you're going to like this album, and you sent it to me. Dude... It lives up to what I expected and then some. Now, I'd known Sturgill Simpson's name in that, you know, big breakout originally of him and wherever you want to put him in the sort of indie rock space, even though he's more country based and influenced. But the sound he put forth on this record, and of course, the title of it plays heavily on the great, uh, great Ray Charles record of modern sounds and country music that if you don't own, get with it. But his ability here to mix that pure outlaw country sound straight out of the 1960s and 70s, but with a psychedelic mix in a weird way that comes out in sort of these these certain moments, these certain big moments on there. It, they call it progressive country mixed with outlaw uh, country and, and whatever you want to call it, dude. It's fresh. It's next level, but it's got a lot of taste of the past. And I talked to you a lot about where I'm at lately. And a lot of where I'm at is that perfect 1967 to 1970 bubble where psychedelic meets rock meets the future of progressive rock in that sort of bubble where it's just so fresh and new. This new record kind of fits in in a weird way, but with a country influence. What made you send this my way? Well, I, uh, I sent you, I think, three records for your birthday. And this one I thought was just one that based on what your other, you know, interests in music are, when you think about like psych and, you know, bands like 
kind of have that sound like the the drive-by truckers that you're really into i just thought that it would be something you'd enjoy and um in terms of country music i think sturgill is like number one pound for pound right now uh, if you're like a real country enthusiast you might disagree with that um you might like that guy with the red beard that sings in the woods but i, I think that sturgill simpson right now is the best thing going in in country music um and just continues to release great album after great album uh, i think the album after this one actually um a sailor's guide to earth i think it's called is, is his best work um uh, i had it around i got it around the time that my second son was born and um whenever i hear that album i just like it, it reminds me of holding him in my arms as a baby it just brings me right back to it well, so i have a, a real sentimental attachment to that second album or i guess that would be his third album but the album after uh meta modern sounds um i i just figured it would be one that would resonate with you so i'm I'm glad you no, liked it, it did. And that's a great story about your son. And uh, this is my entry into everything Stimson does, even though his name's been lingering around my sphere for a while. But I am really bought in on this and still in the early development, you know, honeymoon phase with it. But uh, yeah, great recommendation that came my way. I hope other people out there can hit it the same. Give me one on your side, Aaron. Are this going to be hipster? What do we got going on here? You no, do, yeah, I mean, you mentioned you do reach uh, to all, six, six, all 1967 to 1970s rock music. And that's the theme for me today. So. This album, I think, has been my favorite album, um, like for the most days of my life. If I were like to, you know, it changes from time to time, but this is "Forever Changes" by Love, which was, uh, I think, the second rock album ever released on Elektra after the Doors self-titled album. Um, and oh, sorry, actually, this this would be the third Love album, but the the Love was the second rock band, I guess, signed to Elektra. And "Forever Changes" to me is like one of the all-time great rock albums, um, fusing kind of baroque pop with psychedelic rock. Um, with the, the, the lyrics being just so um, almost like apocalyptic at times and um, ethereal. I, I've just always loved this album so much. It's like, again, I think for the most days of my life, this has been my favorite album. Um, and I, I would just recommend it to anybody who likes psych rock um, or any sort of 60s rock, anything along those lines. Yeah, that's right into where I'm at now. And that's a great album cover. I mean... You know, for as weird as my paintings are, I want my paintings to look like that. I, that that's one that stands out. I put that in a frame, Aaron. So. It's actually the members of the band, too. Like, it's, it's hard to tell. But here, let me lift it up again. Like, this is like, it's all the heads of the members of the band drawn out with a kind of like psychedelic artwork. Indeed. Love that stuff right there. Dude, psych- I always thought, it's weird. I always looked at psychedelic rock as a passing gimmick. Yeah, I got into everything from the, you know, the one hit wonders and 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 sort of the the ones the, the strawberry alarm clock status quo. All these bands you're like, "Oh, that's psychedelic." But dude, there's such a deeper uh wealth of of prime psychedelic and during that stretch I talked about, really beginning in 66 in a lot of ways, the major bands that dipped into psych for a while, you know, like between the buttons from the stones, uh, uh, the notorious bird brothers. I mean, there's just some, there's this classic after classic in that genre, not to mention obviously that really, you know, the doors Hendrix, they're psychedelic rock bands. That really just might be my favorite genre altogether. And I never realized it, Aaron, if that makes any sense. Well, I know you're going to go with your next record, but you, you gave me like the perfect segue for my next record. Hit it. I can do after doors, but. No, hit it right now. Let's hit it, go. okay. So you were talking about artists that were not like into psychedelic rock. Like you mentioned the Stones, they had Satanic Majesties, which I think is one of the great all-time psych albums. And, and different artists that kind of went into that direction. Uh, you can even put, kind of put Miles Davis a little bit in there with, uh, with oh, yeah. you know, Jazz Fusion and Bitches Brew. But this album is the uh, Further Adventures of Charles Westover by Del Shannon. And Del Shannon, if you're not familiar with him, he was a crooner. Like that's what he's most known for being, was like a... A 19, like early 1960s crooner. He had the, the hit single Runaway. And then in 1968, 
he dove into the psychedelic genre and did this album that is very, very under the radar. Not a lot of people know about it at all. It's like this anomaly in his uh, discography um, that is just a pure psychedelic, lush, um, incredible instrumentation. Again, similar to Forever Changes with like a lot of different string instruments and things like that, where Del Shannon went psychedelic for this album. And it's just, I think it's a, an absolute masterpiece of, of his discography where like, he kind of did three or four years of kind of more psychedelic rock. And this album is just like, it's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant album from someone who was again, known for being kind of like this, this heartthrob crooner going into the direction of, uh, of psychedelic so, rock. I eventually would, would go on to join the uh, traveling Wilburys for a cup of coffee as well. There you go. I, that's a good factoid. I didn't even know that factoid actually. Um, here's what I love about that. And whether that's a, whether that's a desperate move to try to stay with the times, or that's just the evolution of his own musicianship. I haven't heard that album, but I'm in, definitely intrigued. You also told me about that psychedelic classic that the zombies put out. You asked me if I like the zombies. And I'm like, yeah, man, I had their greatest hits of their sort of like mid sixties, you know, she's not there era, but they also went in that same psychedelic direction, kind of unannounced and really found some gold as well. Yeah. No, I've got it kicking around here. Where's my Odyssey here? My signed copy of uh, Odyssey and Oracle right here. Signed wow. by the great Colin Blundstone See, and Rod Argent. A, yeah, you're on the next level. I mean, you deal records, you, you have rare ones. You're you're a, uh, a a connoisseur on a very high level. Uh, for my second recommendation, though, I'm going to get a little weird. Um, look, Todd Rundgren in general, you'd say acquired taste, right, right Aaron? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, his 1972 classic, Something Anything, is the ultimate pop paradise. It is the ultimate, you know, a four-sided record where on three of the sides, he plays every single instrument, is the producer, the sound engineer. I mean, he's one of those next-level geniuses. But the record he put out after that one, right? That one had all the big radio hits that we know Todd Rundgren for. Hello, It's Me, you know, all the ones. The one he put out afterwards called... <laughs> a wizard comma a true star from 1973 yo there's something wild going on here first of all one of my favorite album covers without question just pure art rock psychedelic screaming on it but aaron i tried this record for like six months and was like i don't know what the hell's going on i don't understand this this is for rungren being kind of weird to begin with whether you like him for his progressive rock work with utopia or just that crazy over-the-top power pop this record is a next level move to read the history though and find out that he discovered acid in the middle of this that informs it a lot but when you see the when you listen to the totality at a total and you put on the headphones and you sit in the eighth row and you really go after it what you have here is not just a psychedelic meets progressive meets art rock avant classic you have like this concept album where to be fair i'm not even at the point where i understand the concept but the idea that we have 19 songs and most of them are under two minutes so it becomes this flowing medley of weirdness now there are going to be some tracks in here that i don't know if i'll ever come to terms with because they are bizarre they are next level but once you begin to get this record if you get that far you see why it is a five-star record you see the acclaim it has in this weird avant space which look avant pop it's really hit. It's the ultimate hit or miss. It can be hit or miss within the same album. I I'm starting to get what this record is doing. Yeah, yeah. You gotta. You might have to be on acid to fully understand it. But it is a symphony, a flowing symphony of just 
crazy melodies, crazy sounds, and somehow it worked. Like my paintings, somehow it works, Aaron. It works. Well, unfortunately, okay? Todd, Todd Rundgren was such a genius that uh, his genius convinced somebody to kill John Lennon. So, I mean, he must be, must be pretty talented. Wait, are you saying Mark David Chapman was influenced? I thought he did that for Jodie Foster. You're saying I he did that, it for Todd Rundgren? Am I, I think I'm thinking of the right um, story. I think Mark David Chapman was, like, obsessed with Todd Rundgren as well. And um, he no, had a no, catcher Jody in the Foster rye. was a president uh, that almost got assassinated, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, the dude that, yeah, uh, yeah that tried to shoot yeah, Reagan. Like, Mark David Chapman, if I remember the story correctly, okay. was, like, so obsessed with how real the music of Todd Rundgren was and that John Lennon was such a phony that, like, the voices in his head told him to do something about it. So, well, I mean, the phony the element of that. Was, uh, a big Rundgren guy. I didn't know the Rundgren Chapman connection. I have to look into that. That's interesting. Chapman had the connection with uh, A Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, which he had on him at the time of the killing, and the phoniness, which is a real theme in that book. Yeah, right? it's a theme Played of into the that. Rye. That's right. That's You're right. The Jodie Foster reference is for the guy, I can't think of his name, who. Uh, who ended up shooting Brady and missed Reagan or caught Reagan, but didn't finish him off. Weird, weird, weird. That's our vinyl Rex. Just the same. If you're into what we're into, thank you for taking the time. Uh, you got any latest news on vinyl? You, you find anything outrageous over the top that, that blew you away? Well, I was in Japan in, in March and bought all kinds of, in, uh, sorry, in May maybe and bought all kinds of stuff. I like I, the amount of record stores in Japan is like, I mean, Japan is like, everything is kind of excess in terms of like hobbies. Like yeah. the hobbies that people are into, like if you're into any sort of hobby, it's like Japan is like the place you want to go because it's so, there's so much. Um, and the records are there were like just unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, Mark I, I can hardly keep track of all of these, these records that I have kicking around. In Did fact, you... I'm actually going to be uh, on Saturday before the pay-per-view selling records at a, a local record store here. So uh, stay tuned for uh, information on Wait, that if you'd like to come and buy some You're records. doing an Abron pop-up in Toronto? I'm doing a pop-up. On the patio of a record store on Saturday, from your own personal collection, which is yeah. dis- disgusting. It is. So if people want to buy a piece of me. Um, wow. Whose pieces of me is that? Emmy Lou Harris. Somebody wants to buy uh, a piece of no, me. No, that's Jewel. That's actually Jewel. Jewel. Not yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what album am I thinking of by Emmy Lou Harris? But either way, I mean, but she yeah, may have had a song with that. If you want, if you want to buy uh, a piece of me, like uh, like the Jewel album, as uh, BC pointed out, where's that reference counter? Where's that? Where's that? Um, yeah. Then you can you can do that on Saturday. I'll, I'll have information. You were on meant for me, media. Aaron. And I was meant for you. There it is. Okay. There you I go. actually saw Jewel live. This is an interesting. This is the weirdest festival lineup you'll ever hear. So I saw Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Oasis, Spiritualized, um, Jewel, The Gin Blossoms, and uh, what was the last? And um, uh, what was the grunge band? Screaming Trees. They were all on the same wow. bill. It was like one of the first wow. concerts I ever saw when I was in grade eight at uh, Molson Park in Barrie. And that, that was the night. You became a man, indeed. But Jewel, Absolutely. Prime 94 Jewel, right? Yeah, yeah it would have been, yeah, that would have been 1990. It would have been before, I think, her first album came out. She was like really early, or maybe right when her first album came out. Post-homelessness, right? Post-homelessness. Yeah. She might have been yeah. living on like a tour bus, but you know. Really, most of my, my heroes have lived in their car, right? Nganu, Rousey, Jewel. Well, Nganu lived in the parking lot, didn't he? Or did he live in a car eventually? I mean, it's all the same at the end of the day. Hey, UFC 292 this weekend. Uh, it's going to be fired up, enjoyed. We're going to be back Friday with Shaquille Majori. We're going to have some picks for you. I'm going to be there Saturday post-fight with a live show. Aaron, you do great work at TSN. Should people be tuning in for anything coming up around the corner? Uh, yeah, like I said, you can, go, like, you can go to TSN's YouTube and watch a lot of my interviews there, tsn.ca slash UFC, Aaron.report, vote for me at the World MMA Awards, and that's all I got for you, BC.
Yeah, the, the same people that make 17 dummy email accounts because they love us so much to vote for us, knowing that afterwards people will blame us for asking our people to vote for us. I'm going to ask you, vote for Abram. Let's give this guy a chance, okay? Speak if with anybody has heart. a connection with any uh, Russian troll farms, let me know. Russian bot farms. <laughs> there you go. I'm in the market for it. <laughs> Aaron's like, I'm not afraid to win dirty. There it is at the end of the day. Thank you to our great producers, Gaff Pierre, Long Island Luke behind the scenes. Um, later today on the Showtime Sports YouTube account, you can watch day two. I think it's a 2.30 Eastern start. I'm not really sure. Canelo versus Charlo, the LA side of that presser as we continue to get fired up for that fight. That's the show, though. Hope you enjoyed it on this hump day. Really the, the fastest, most efficient, and an electric 90 minutes in combat sports, Aaron. And anytime you come by these parts, we're happy to have you, sir. That's an absolute pleasure. I'm always happy to do it. Hopefully Luke's having right. a good vacation. Clearing his head I, I hope as well. I hope. For the Elvis Costello of MMA, uh, my name is BC, and we've been Morning Combat. And it's just, it's just great to be in your life, okay? So take care of yourself up here. And uh, I got two words for you. We out.